You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, I can't believe that the holidays are almost here. They are very quickly approaching. And in the Bruce family, the holiday season is the board game season. And one of our favorite board games is called Wise and Otherwise. Has anyone ever played this game? Uh, It's not that, no, it's sort of like Balderdash, but instead of making up definitions for words, you make up your own proverbs. It's a great game. Someone will read the first half of a proverb, and then you don't know the second half, and so everyone playing has to create their own ending to the proverb. And then someone takes those, shuffles them up, and then you hear all of the proverbs read, and you have to guess which of the Proverbs is a real proverb, and which one is fake. Which ones are fake? And and here's what's great about the game. Usually, genuine wisdom, true wisdom, sounds way weirder than any wisdom that you can come up with on your own. Here's a few great Proverbs from around the world that I was reading about this week. A dog bitten by a snake is a lot more afraid of sausages. A monkey dressed in silk, still a monkey. (laughs) Accusation always follows the cat. All you cat owners know that. Even the rabbit dreams of the moon. Here's my personal favorite. There's more than one donkey called Martin at the fair. (laughs) There's always more than one. True wisdom, enduring wisdom, often sounds stranger than manufactured wisdom. Sort of what Paul says in Corinthians, right? That that God's wisdom sounds peculiar. It sounds odd compared to the wisdom of the world. And we've seen in 1 Corinthians 1 through 2 that Paul is repeatedly making this point, that God's wisdom is unlike our wisdom, the wisdom that we would, would make up. He says this in today's passage. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. We're, we're currently in this study of 1 Corinthians, and as we've seen, the, the church at Corinth was enamored with wisdom, with the latest intellectual fads and trends, and they'd come to see the gospel as the newest, coolest trend. The gospel was a way to attain power and status and spiritual enlightenment to to set yourself apart in society. And we've seen that Paul counters that by saying that the gospel is not worldly wisdom. In fact, it is antithetical to the wisdom of the world. We saw this last week. Paul says that by the standards of the world, the gospel doesn't sound like wisdom. What does it sound like? Foolishness. It's foolishness. To the world. Paul preached a foolish message. He delivered it in a foolish way. He didn't use the rhetorical conventions of the day. He didn't use good marketing tactics to emotionally manipulate people into believing the gospel. And that was very deliberate on Paul's part. He didn't want the Corinthians' faith to rest on his charisma or rhetoric or even their own emotional response. What did he want their faith to rest in? The power of God. 
So Paul is emphatic, the gospel is not worldly wisdom. But a question arises, doesn't it? Okay, Paul, you keep saying that the gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness to the world. It's a foolish message delivered foolishly. But wait, 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 wait. God is wise, isn't he? He's the all-wise God. So how could a wise God give us a foolish message? The message can't actually be foolish, can't it? And here Paul clarifies. He says the gospel isn't actual foolishness. It just appears to be foolish. In reality, the gospel is the wisdom of God, and yet, Paul reiterates, it is not the wisdom of this age. Here's the transition. Paul has shown that the gospel is not the wisdom of this age. Now he's going to show us how the gospel is different from the wisdom of the world. How is God's wisdom different than worldly wisdom? That's the question, and Paul highlights three things that are unique about God's wisdom. First, worldly wisdom is fading. It's passing away. God's wisdom is enduring. Worldly wisdom is often viewed as a sort of intellectual goal or attainment, but God's wisdom is a gift. It's a spiritual gift, and you'll notice the spelling of that word. That's deliberate. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Third, worldly wisdom is often self-glorifying. Godly wisdom is self-giving. It leads to a completely different kind of life. Here's why this passage is, is helpful. I think it helps us to distinguish worldly wisdom from godly wisdom, but also it helps us to tell, like, how do I know I'm growing in godly wisdom? How do I know I'm maturing as a Christian? It's not always easy to tell if someone is growing in godly wisdom, is it? Because the reality is this. Here's what Paul's saying. You can be hitting your goals in life. You can be successful. You can be above average related to everyone in your peer group. None of that means that you're becoming wise the way God defines wisdom. So how do you know if you're growing in godly wisdom? Well, this passage helps us to determine that. We really need God's eyes to know if we've, we've got the right destination here. So before we look at this passage, let's just pray and let's ask God for his help. Father, you say that if we lack wisdom, we should ask you, that you give generously to all without reproach. God, uh, we need wisdom that only you have, wisdom that we can't manufacture. And so I, I pray that you would teach us, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ, to think and act like Jesus. Help us to do that and to define success on his terms and not our own. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So what's the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom? Here's, here's the truth number one. Worldly wisdom fades. God's wisdom endures. Here's the wisdom of the world. What's new is what's true right? And what's newest is what's truest. That's why people say things like, it's 2022. You ever heard the it's 2022 argument? It's just like, whatever you believe is stupid because of the year we live in, right? How can you possibly still believe that? People are enamored with the latest idea, the newest trend. But the irony is this, often it is the things that are most relevant today that are most irrelevant tomorrow. The things that are most popular today are most 
rejected tomorrow. God's wisdom works differently. It isn't always acknowledged, and yet it's a wisdom that endures. Paul says that he does impart wisdom, but it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of that, this age who are what? Doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The, the wisdom of this age, Paul says, worldly wisdom, it's doomed to pass away. How does Paul know that? Well, he says, look at what happened at the cross. Remember, the Corinthians are obsessed with worldly wisdom, which they associate with power, prestige, status. But Paul says those are things are no guarantee that a person is right with God. Think about this. Who opposed Jesus? Was it the foolish people of the world? No, it was the wise the powerful. Who was it? Well, Israel's religious leaders are the most moral, upstanding members of society. And then you have the Roman ruling establishment who are the most powerful, competent people in society. And so Paul is saying, think about this. The, the wise of the world, the powerful, the moral collectively reject Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, who do they reject? God's wisdom. This is the ultimate example, Paul says, that the wise and the powerful aren't always on the right side. In fact, on this side, they're not just on the wrong side of history, they're on the wrong side of eternity. They miss everything. They reject the very wisdom of God. And Paul sees that decision as symptomatic of what the powers of the world do. They protect their status. They are wise in their own eyes and they oppose the work of God. That's what happened at the cross. Why do earthly powers do that? Why do they oppose God's wisdom? Because earthly powers are ultimately under the sway of what? Spiritual powers, of Satan, of demonic powers. And what the people who crucified Jesus didn't realize is that they were just pawns in this satanic strategy, right? To oppose God, to crucify Jesus. That's why Paul says they were ignorant of this. What does Jesus pray from the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't realize they're caught up in this bigger spiritual war, but they are opposing the wisdom of God. In fact, they're relying on their own wisdom and opposing God's wisdom. And Paul says, had these people known that what they were doing was that, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What is Paul saying here? I think he's saying this, that if the rulers of the world, if Pilate and the religious establishment, if all these people knew that by killing Jesus— they'd be exposing the futility of their own wisdom, they would have never done such a thing. They would have never humiliated themselves in that way. See, here's the profound irony. In opposing God's wisdom and killing Jesus, what were the world's leaders doing? They were fulfilling God's wise plan. Even in opposing God's wisdom, they were demonstrating God's wisdom because God worked through their sinful actions to redeem the world through Jesus. So even in opposing God, they were fulfilling the wisdom of God and exposing at the same time the futility of their own wisdom. That's how much wiser God is than the wise people of the world. One writer said it this way, that in working to kill Jesus, they signed their own death warrant. What he's saying is that what time will tell is that Jesus will be vindicated, their wisdom won't. 
their wisdom is passing away. The best wisdom of the day is doomed to fade away. And this points to the big problem with human wisdom. It's fleeting. It's transient. Often the consensus of today is rejected tomorrow. And if you don't believe me, remember COVID? Remember that? I, I remember that. I, I mean, it's still happening, but I remember that, right? It was like, you must clean every surface in your house or you will die, right? That was the public messaging. And I bought all those Clorox wipes. I'm like, okay, got to protect the family. And then two months later, they're like, oh, you don't really get it that way. It's like, oh man, what do I do with all these wipes, right? This is true, right? Scientific knowledge is always a moving target. That's true scientifically. It's even more true morally. The vision of the good life is always changing from one generation to the next. That's why people say, I can't believe my grandparents believe stuff like that. Guess what? You're going to have grandkids someday. <laughs> what do you think they're going to say? I can't believe my grandparents believe that, right? Every generation says that, and this is the transience, the impermanence of the wisdom of the world. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But, but look at the wisdom of God. How far does God's wisdom go back, according to this passage? Before the ages, before time began, God had already architected this plan in his mind to redeem a people for himself. Now, it was hidden. It was secret. But it was there. It was working. And then at just the right time, Christ comes in the fullness of time and he reveals God's mystery. He reveals the plan. He fulfills the plan. And what is the plan? It's a plan to redeem us for our ultimate what? What does he say? Glory. Jesus dies to take our shame. He rises that we might share in his own resurrected glory because he's the Lord of glory, the one to whom all glory belongs. So he has this plan to give us glory forever. So the wisdom of today, here today, God and tomorrow, God's wisdom goes from eternity past to eternity future. And so the question is this, how do we live in light of this? There's nothing wrong with acquiring new information, with gaining insight. God has created us with this hunger to know truth, but human wisdom will always be contingent and contestable. And often, the best ideas of today will look like the worst ideas tomorrow. The deeper question for us as Christians, if, I, if I'm growing in godly wisdom, is this. It's a question of assurance. Where do I place my confidence? Do I put my confidence that I always have to learn more new things? Or do I lean more deeply into the one enduring thing I know which is the gospel. The thing I know will be true today and tomorrow and into eternity, right? Where do I get assurance? Here's why this is such an important thing for us to think about in the information age, right? We have the illusion now that, that wisdom is a Google search away, right? That, that I can just search my way to the right answer and if I do enough searching, I'll find the right answer and I'll be wise right? Here, here's the, the, the paradox of this though, right? Does more information give you more confidence in the decisions you're making? Oftentimes, no, not at all. In fact, it just leads to this sort of paralysis by analysis, right? That you can learn so much that you have no idea what to do because 
the more information you produce, you, you acquire, the more complexities, the more variables, and you're just left, you're stuck. You don't know what to believe or, or what to think. And so where do I find assurance? Is it just getting a better answer? Huh? I don't know. I remember when Addie was an infant, she had difficulty eating, and so she was constantly hungry. And one night was really hard. We tried feeding her, and she wouldn't eat. We tried rocking her. She wouldn't sleep. And we faced the age-old dilemma, right? Every parent's got to face this at some point, to pacify or not to pacify, right? Do I shove that thing in her mouth so I can sleep? Or do I not? And in that moment, I, because I was desperate, I made a terrible decision. I went online. <laughs> I bet there's a mom's forum on this somewhere, like pros and cons of passive. That was the worst decision of my life. Because you have, like, you didn't know that there were millions of moms where this was their hill to die on, right? And it's like, you will destroy your child's teeth if you pacify that child. You want, you want to harm your child? And the other ones are like, you, you, you got to make sure that child gets regular sleep patterns and they can get SIDS if you don't do this. And you're crazy if you don't pacify. And so I'm reading this like Reddit subthread, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, like either ruin her this way or ruin her that way. I'm like, this is horrible, right? And that's the problem with information. It can just paralyze you. And in that moment, I had this realization, like, you know, God knew we were going to be in this moment. And, and, and it's really the fate of my entire child's life rest on this decision. And, and, and the reality is, it's like, okay, I belong to Jesus. God loves Addie too. I probably don't have as much power as I think I do to screw her up for the rest of my life. So just make a decision and go to bed, right? Th th that's one of the problems of living in an information age. You cannot get peace and security through more information. You can't. You can't do it. The only place to find true security is in the one truth that doesn't change, and it's the gospel truth, the enduring truth. So that's what we run to, right? And then you just make a decision and you live with it. That's what wise people do. Gather enough information, but then you go, you know what? The, the one truth I know is that God's got this. He's got me. And so I'm just not going to live in constant anxiety or paralysis analysis about everything, Right? Because ultimately, his good plans don't get overturned. So, worldly wisdom fades. God's wisdom endures. Here's the second difference between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. To the world, wisdom is a goal. It's an attainment. You're not graced with enlightenment. You achieve enlightenment, right? It's a pursuit of the intellect, of the will. But, but God's wisdom is totally different. In fact, it's a gift. And it's a gift he freely gives, and it's a spiritual gift. Now, it's very important. Paul's about to use the word spiritual more often than he ever does in his writings. Every time you hear that word spiritual, here's what you should hear. Of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what he's talking about. Not just some generic spirituality. He's saying something given to you by the Holy Spirit. It was the Corinthians who loved just being spiritual being enlightened, being in touch with their spiritual self. But Paul says, you've got your spirituality all backwards. Here, here's the issue that the Corinthians are thinking of right now, right? Paul says there's a secret and hidden wisdom 
that all of the elites of the day couldn't figure out. Now, that, that brings up a natural question, right? Well, man, if the brightest minds of the day couldn't figure out what God's doing, who can? Who could figure it out? Well, Paul tells us, verse 9, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Paul quotes from at least two different places in Isaiah here. Here's his point. That, that God's plan is completely inaccessible to us unless what? God reveals his plan. That's the point. Now, the Corinthians are probably getting excited at this point because they loved speculative wisdom and they thought, oh man, I'm tired of this simple message about the cross. Paul, stop giving us milk. Get us out. Yeah, we want to hear the deep stuff now. What is, what's the deep stuff that he's revealed? Well, well Paul tells us, what, what has God revealed according to this passage? Now, many people, I think, misunderstand this verse because when we hear what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what do we think of? Heaven, right? We think heaven, that's what Paul's got to be talking about, mainly these eternal joys of heaven. And he's just saying, we can't imagine how great heaven will be and I can only imagine, right? And we start singing that song and that's what Paul's talking about. And it's not. It's not primarily. Why? Because what does Paul say? The things which no one could imagine have been revealed to us. So whatever Paul is talking about isn't something we could just only guess at. No, it's something he has revealed. So what has God revealed? He's revealed his plan of redemption. That's the point. That's what God has revealed, the cross, to believers that this was God's means of making everything right. That is the deep stuff of the Christian life. Those are the deep things. You never graduate from the gospel. The deepest truth theologically is Christ crucified. And how do we get that truth? Is it, is it just through our own power and intellectual attainment? Is that who's in the know? Uh, uh, is it the smartest people in the world, those of highest status who figure that out? Well, no. Paul says here the, the simplest, humblest believer in Jesus is more in the know about reality than the brightest, most privileged person in the world who rejects Jesus. See, see just believing in the cross means that you you have the deep things of God revealed to you. Here's the important point, though, because that can make you feel a little self-important as a believer, can't it? Could kind of make you feel like, I figured it out. I know the ultimate mystery of the universe, that kind of means I'm better than other people, doesn't it? I remember having a, a Bible study in high school, and, and we started thinking about this more, and one of the students was like, wait a minute, this means Christians are better than other people, right? I mean... We figured out that we're saved by grace and not works, and we believe that. That makes us like kind of better than people who don't believe that, right? Isn't that the point? Now, that's an ironic comment, right? I'm better than you because I figured out that I cannot be saved by being better than you. Uh, but that's how the Corinthians felt, right? That they had the secret knowledge from God, that they'd figured it out, that they were in the know. But Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You did not figure this out. In fact, you couldn't even believe or accept this unless God's spirit had given you the ability to believe and accept it. What does Paul mean? Listen to what he says here. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, 
For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's distinct as a person from the Father and the Son, and yet his work is intimately bound up with the Father and the Son. He, He shares their nature. He fulfills their will. And in Scripture, one of the Spirit's key roles is to reveal or disclose truth to us. That's what the Spirit does, and Paul illustrates this through an analogy. And here's the point of the analogy here. The only person who knows what's going on inside of my mind is who? Me, right? The only person who knows what's going on inside of your mind is you. So when I come up to you and say, hey, how you doing? And you say, fine. I know something's wrong. I I can guess at what it is, but until you tell me, until you disclose, I can only guess. I can only make assumptions. I don't know, and and me in particular, I really don't know because I'm horrible at reading people. I usually just think, oh, they must be fine, right? Just keep going. Uh, My wife loves that. Um, but, But here's the point. Just as only I know what is going on in me, only God knows what is going on in the mind of God. That's the point. We shouldn't stretch this analogy too far like God has a body and then there's a, the spirit is, is inside of God. That's not what Paul is saying. He's just saying that just as your self-knowledge is unique to you, God's self-knowledge is unique to him. And here's the deal. Unless God reveals something to us, do we know anything about God? Nothing. Nothing. It is completely hidden. In fact, there is an unbridgeable chasm between the mind and God and us, unless from this side, God initiates something to tell us what he's thinking. Here's the good news. That's what the spirit of God does. John 16, Jesus says, the spirit will take what is mine and give it to you. The point is the spirit of God takes the deep things of God and then comes into us so that we can see and believe the gospel message. That's the point. Only the Spirit can open our spiritual eyes to see our spiritual need and believe the gospel. That's why Paul goes on to say this. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, at first glance, this passage feels very um, spiritual, doesn't it? Very mystical, esoteric, like there's some deeper truths that we have to unearth by getting into the spiritual realm. And the Corinthians would have thought that, right? And Paul is actually probably poking fun at them a little bit because they were very enamored with being spiritual and living on this higher plane than other Christians and having figured things out. But remember, when Paul talks about spiritual here, what does he mean? He just means the Holy Spirit. And here's his point, that our belief in the gospel is from beginning to end a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to write. The Spirit empowered Paul to preach. The Spirit then opened the eyes of my heart to see the gospel. The Spirit softened my heart to receive it. 
The Spirit gave me the ability to believe. So from beginning to end, understanding spiritual stuff is a work of who? The Spirit. Spiritual, not in the sense of, oh, I just got in touch with my inner spirituality and now I understand the things of God. No. My inner spirituality is a chasm of darkness. Doesn't lead to any knowledge of God. Only the Holy Spirit can create that knowledge of God in me, and that's profoundly hum- humbling, isn't it? That's the point Paul's trying to make. That, that God, when he reveals things, even the act of revealing is grace. See, see what, do we, what do we see here? We see that the things we understand are the things freely given us by God. Not some achievement, it's grace. That's the message of the gospel. The message is grace. The means of communicating is grace. I can't even understand this thing unless God gives me the grace to believe it through the Spirit. So you have a Spirit-empowered teacher, a Spirit-enabled reception of the message, and apart from the Spirit, all of this is impossible. That's why Paul goes on to say that the natural person, that's just someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, why do people reject the gospel? It's not because they're dumb, okay? There are non-believers who can articulate the gospel beautifully, who can explain theology perfectly, That's not the kind of understanding Paul is talking about here. He's talking about an understanding that leads to belief. It's not just the mind articulating something. It's the heart embracing something. And only the Holy Spirit can give us that ability. Before Christ, we are all in the position of Paul on the road to Damascus, just going on our own way. The Spirit has to knock us off our horse blind us, and then remove the scales so we can see the beauty of Christ for ourselves. That's where all of us are, which means that a Christian understanding of wisdom should make us the most humble people on the face of the earth. No one can say, I figured it out. That's why there is nothing smellier or stinkier than a smug, superior Christian. Right? It's one thing when people in the world are full of themselves. That's just worldly wisdom. But a Christian? Listen, the deeper we go into God's wisdom, the more we descend into humility and realize it's not just that I couldn't save myself. It's that I couldn't even realize I couldn't save myself if it wasn't for God giving me a heart that was receptive to that. Oh, that'll make you humble. That, that'll make you humble. You will have no air of superiority when you're sharing the gospel with other people when you share this gospel. That's wisdom. What does this mean for us? What, what, what does it mean? You know, I can't come to God and discern the gospel unless the Spirit gives me those eyes to embrace it. But what's true about coming to Christ is also true of growing in Christ. I can't grow unless the Holy Spirit continues to give me a heart that really wants to believe and obey the Bible. So how do I know if I'm growing in godly wisdom? Well, when it comes to knowing God's ways, here's the question. On the next slide. 
When it comes to knowing God's ways, do I see my greatest need as intellectual or spiritual? It's great to learn more about the Bible. Do it. You don't want a bad interpretation of the Bible. Get better at interpreting the Bible. That's great. Do it. But, but if the problem was just getting smarter, man, smart people would be really godly, wouldn't they? But the truth is you can know a lot and embrace very little. Our profound need whenever we come to the Bible is that the Holy Spirit would work in us in such a way that our hearts actually want to believe and embrace the things we're reading. Because the default of sin is to reject it, even if we understand it. And we desperately need God to give us. That's what enlightenment is. That's what spiritual enlightenment is. It's the Holy Spirit awakening me, not just to the truth, but that the truth is good. The truth is beautiful. I should want to live that way. That's why I love Ephesians 1, 16 through 18. Look at what Paul prays for people who have already come to know Jesus. He says this. I promise you he does. <laughs> he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit, should probably be capital, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. Now, here's what's great about Ephesians 1. Paul gives him a bunch of theological truth in the first half of Ephesians 1. And then here he says, I pray that you would know this stuff. And then do you know what he says? The stuff he just said in Ephesians 1. Well, wait, I thought they already knew that. No. You can know something and not know it. Not embrace it in your heart. Not have it change your affections and your perspective and then your life. And family, when you go to God and you open up the Bible, that's what you desperately need. It's not just some intellectual pursuit of getting more knowledge. You need a new, transformed heart to believe the things you are reading. What does that mean practically? It means when you come to Scripture, you should come with dependence. Say, Spirit, unless you change me, I can't embrace this for my life. I, I pray the same thing every morning before I open my Bible. Psalm 119, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wonders from your law. It's not enough for me to just get information here. I have to want to believe this. Only the Spirit can create that. And so if you are reading the Bible prayerlessly, you're reading it carelessly, Right? You begin in prayer. You continue in prayer. When you get to a difficult spot, you pray. You pray afterwards because the Holy Spirit has to illuminate this process. Does that make sense? And wise people, godly wise people understand that. It's not just about me knowing it. It's about me knowing it through the Holy Spirit. So, godly wisdom endures. Worldly wisdom fades. Godly wisdom is from the Spirit. It's not an intellectual attainment. Finally, it leads to a radically different kind of life. If wisdom is just an intellectual attainment, guess what that means? I found it. I'm better than you. This kind of wisdom doesn't lead to a self-glorifying life. It leads to a self-giving life. In fact, it leads to a life that looks like Jesus, who lived for the interests of others. Here's how Paul ends the passage. He says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged 
by no one. What's Paul talking about here? Uh, what we know from the context is that the Corinthians loved judging people in the church. Just loved it. Judgy, judgy, judgy. Ooh, here's an immature Christian because they don't speak in tongues. They don't prophesy. Here's an immature Christian because they follow the wrong leaders. Here's an immature Christian because da-da, 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 da-da. I'm a mature Christian because da-da, da-da, da-da. They were obsessed with that. What's Paul saying here? The spiritual person by which he means just someone who has the Holy Spirit. Someone who has the Holy Spirit already has what discernment? Here's what Paul is saying, that if you have the Holy Spirit, you have what you need to be wise in Christ. So subtext, Corinthians, stop judging each other. Stop saying, I'm better than that Christian. I'm better than that Christian. You all have the Spirit. That's the context. God has acquitted that person. God has justified that. Stop passing these petty judgments trying to figure out who's superior. See, God, what Paul is doing here is turning their whole concept of spirituality on its head. The Corinthians liked words like wisdom, like spiritual. You know what word I think they really liked? Mature. Ooh, I'm a mature Christian. Are you a mature Christian? And Paul is turning all those ideas on their head here. What's a spiritual person? Just someone who has the Holy Spirit. Just a plain old Christian has all the resources they need. Stop judging each other. Who's a mature person, according to, to Paul? Remember, he says this to the mature. Here's the irony of what Paul is saying here about Christian maturity. He's saying the mature are people who have the Holy Spirit and who believe the gospel. In Christ, they're already complete. That's his point. In Christ, they already have all the resources they need to grow. Here's a problem. You know, throughout church history, people have really jacked this passage up in the way they interpret it. Because they hear Paul say mature and immature, and they think, ooh, here, Paul is actually, what he's doing here, he's talking about two categories of Christians. And there's kind of spiritual and mature Christians. And then there's these carnal, immature Christians. We'll talk more about that next week. And it's kind of like, then they try to figure out, ooh, what are the really spiritual Christians? It's like a new class of Christianity, right? And here's the carnal Christians who are kind of down here, right? And then people come up with all these definitions of what it means to kind of level up in Christianity, and hit that next level. Now, here's the problem with that interpretation. That's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were the ones who were obsessed with levels of Christianity. And I'm on level two and you're only on level one. And someday I'm going to get to level three, right? I'm going to fight the big boss on level four. And I'm going to be here and you're going to be down here. Paul's blowing all that up. He's saying, stop passing judgment on each other. All of you have the Holy Spirit all of you have all that you need in Christ. All of you have the ability to grow. Stop creating two-class Christianity. That's what he's saying. It's not about being in this level or that level. It's just about where you're going, where you're growing. That's the point. And what does a growing Christian look like? Well, Paul tells us, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? What do we have through the Holy Spirit? What does Paul say? What does he say? This is the one time I'm asking you to talk back to me. Please, do it. What does he say? The mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing that, that if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the mindset of Christ within you? What does that mean? What is the mind of Christ? I think it's Christ's own mindset in fulfilling God's wise plan. How did Christ live his life? It wasn't for his own glory. 
at least not for the recognition of the people around him. It was for our good. In fact, he constantly laid down his interests for the interests of others and ultimately died the worst death imaginable. And God says, that's what I honored. This is turning the wisdom of the world upside down. It was your life of sacrificial service and the cross that God honored and exalted. What does it mean for us to have that mindset? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 2.5, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is the mind of Christ? It's seeking the good of others above my own, right? That's what a wise person looks like. They're not so focused on how much better they are than other Christians. In fact, they're not focused on that at all. They're just focused on how they can serve other Christians because that's what Christ did. He came not to be served, but to serve. So that's the way you know you're growing. You're thinking less about yourself and more about the needs of others. You're, you're disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. That's, that's humility. It's not thinking less of yourself, as C.S. Lewis said. It's just thinking about yourself less. It's getting over this me fixation and having the mind of Christ, which is laying down my life for the good of other people. Now, that's a different standard for godliness, isn't it? Uh, earthly wisdom is I build myself up, I'm better than you. Godly wisdom, I know that the path up is actually down into service, into humility, into self-forgetfulness. And here's the question, and I'll end on this. When you think about your own godliness, how do I know I'm growing in wisdom? Well, how do you measure it? Do you measure your godliness against the standard set by other believers or against the gold standard? <laughs> the perfect standard, the standard of Christ. You don't know you're growing just because you're better than other believers. You realize that? That's just earthly wisdom. You know you're growing if you look more like Jesus. And one of our problems is that we can get so fixated on how we're doing relative to other Christians that we forget the standard, right? The standard is to have the mind of, of Christ. I'm, I'm guilty of this because I like to compare myself to the pastors I want to be like, Right? And I do this weird thing, I don't, you know, no one knows the thoughts of Jeff unless Jeff tells you, so here they are, okay? So, but like I do this weird thing, uh, like when I'll get angry at my kids, I'll get frustrated and I'll think, man, I bet that pastor doesn't do that with his kids. <sighs> right? Like, that's a weird standard, isn't it? Because let's say that pastor was screaming at his kids, should that make me feel better? Oh, good, I'm like that pastor, right? That's a terrible standard. The standard is never like, well, do the Christians around me watch that or do that or think that? No, it's what? What does Christ say? That's the gold standard. And, and for some of us, we have to get our fixation off other believers, how we're doing against them, and just say, do I look like Jesus? Do I look like Jesus in this area? Does that make sense? You know, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, here, here's the reality um, I, I hope you've seen it this morning. I can't convince you to believe the gospel. Can't, can't do it. Can't use good marketing. Can't use better arguments. Can't use more eloquent speech. I can't do it. But the Holy Spirit can bring you to himself. Jesus says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. What the Spirit does is he will awaken you to your own sin. Ooh, I'm worse than I thought especially when I compare myself to God's standard. He will awaken you to the righteousness of Jesus, that he's the beautiful one. He's the good one. I need to believe in him. 
And so here's the reality. If you have not yet come to Jesus, but you know you're a sinner who needs saving, only the Holy Spirit can create that in you. And what I would plead with you is if the Holy Spirit is drawing you and awakening you to that reality, don't delay. Don't delay. Come today and you can just say a prayer like this. Would you pray with me now? God, I am so humbled. I, I can't even come to you unless you give me the ability. So Spirit, thank you for awakening me to my need. I am a sinner, but Jesus, you are a great Savior. Thank you for dying to bear the punishment for my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead that I might share in your glory forever. I trust you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and I follow you as my Lord. Spirit, help me in following Jesus all the days of my life. In your name, amen.